Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Millionaire Real Estate Agent Podcast. I'm Jason Abrams, and you've just embarked on a journey into the heart of the real estate universe, where every episode promises insights, innovation, and inspiration. In this series, we'll be unraveling the mysteries behind real estate's biggest success stories. What drives top agents? What's behind their skyrocketing profits? And how are these industry leaders creating their dream careers? This isn't just a podcast. It's a deep dive into the passion, strategy, and the real success stories that shape the real estate landscape. So let's get started and set the stage for an incredible journey together. Welcome to the Millionaire Real Estate Agent Podcast. On today's show, I'm hanging out with Phil Jones. You're gonna love this guy. He's a buddy of mine and he wrote a book called Exactly What to Say. Phil Jones has literally spent his life mastering the words that move people into action faster with him than without him. And he's gonna share his secrets and his models and systems with us. Hang on tight, let's dive in. Friends, Phil Jones. Hey everybody, today I am joined by Phil Jones. Phil, how are you, sir? I am very, very well indeed, Jason. Great to be here. Thank you for being with us. So there, there's so many people on this podcast that have read your book. And so they just want me to jump in. I already know the comments are coming in. Start talking about exactly what to say. I'm not going to do it. I, I actually want to talk about how, how did we get here? Why was writing any of these books? And why was mastering the way that we communicate so important to you? Oh, man. Um, is I've been a student of success my whole entire life. I've always had a passion for learning, and I've always looked for role models or mentors before I knew what a role model or a mentor was. And anytime I'd ever met anybody who was better at anything than I was, is I'd never be in awe of them. I'd never say, wow, I'd ask the question, how? And more often than not, people would tell me, right? They'd sit down, they'd unpack, and they'd share things. And this is as early as, you know, my dad was a self-employed or still is a self-employed contractor. And I'd go on jobs and go to work with him and would meet on successful people's houses. And I'd be that inquisitive kid asking, like, the guy that drives the Aston Martin, like, how he got to buy the Aston Martin. And, and those things were part of my normal parts of life. When I got myself into a position of a, a senior leadership role in my late teens, early 20s, is I was running big sales teams for a big department store group. Okay, just stop, just stop it for a second, because that's really bizarre to me. You <laughs> had me right up until you said late teens or early 20s. How yeah. do you end up running any, like when I was in my late teens, I was playing Madden football till 3 a.m. I got my real estate license at, at, at 20 and then tried to learn how to become an adult. I'm still working on it. You, on the other hand, you're already running organizations at 20? I bought my first home at 19. So uh, let, let, let's lean into this. So I was building businesses all through my teens. I started knocking on the doors of my neighbors. I had a car washing business at 14. I had a landscaping business at 15. I had a mobile disco business, an event planning business. We were running like... Um, like big parties, two, 300 people selling tickets and, and putting people in rooms for that. Like we had a, had a good time through my teens making money. 
Did you hear what he just said? I, I don't want this to go past because it, he's in his teens when all this is happening. So it sounds like he might not have been ready for it, but life was ready for him. There's a great book called A Joy-Filled Life, and the author is a woman named Mo Anderson, who was the former CEO of Keller Williams. And I'm going to interview her. You'll, you'll hear from her in a future show. But here's what she says in her book. She says, I realize now it isn't always about your certification or your credentials. It's more about having the ability and the passion to do something and the confidence to do it well. These qualities can be just as important or even more important than a professional certification or some piece of paper saying you took some class. Ability, passion, and confidence are what help you discover your true voice and sing your unique song for the world. When I hear Phil, that's what I think he's saying. Again, I might not have been ready for it, but life was ready for me. What I did learn, though, in, in all of those early days is the difference between those that were doing good and those that would crush it is the ones that would crush it would have a level of efficacy within their word choices that was precise, that they could accelerate the speed of decision. It wasn't just about getting the outcome that they were looking to try and achieve. There was science and method in it that actually meant that they got a guaranteed outcome almost all the time and with high levels of efficiency and speed. So on the big days in those retail environments, what would often happen is the the amateur high volume salesperson would run around like a crazy person and write a ton of business. But the quality of the business that they would write would drop when the volume turned up. By quality, I mean, how profitable was it? What finance term was it on? Did it come with the right amount of extras? Was the quality of the paperwork good enough to actually fulfill the delivery of said purchase? It just became a mess with about a third of the top producers because they couldn't cope with maintaining quality when volume came in. Well, I but think we can all relate to that. I'll never forget one of the first listings I took. I came back and said to the manager, I took the listing and he said, great. What'd you charge? I said, nothing. And he said, well, did you really take it? And I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I got the paperwork signed. The truth was, though, that that was only part of it. There were so many different pieces of the deal that could be nuanced and romanced. That's right. So taking the time to be able to actually get the result and the refinement was almost always down to building a series of word tracks that became your tools. They became your arts of the craft. They became your ability to be able to have confidence in your competence because what you've got is versions of I got this. And what I learned in that big chapter of my life is that success in selling has nothing to do with embellishing the option of yes. It has everything to do with destroying the option of no, which is a very different approach to how most people approach sales. It's like, let's look at features and benefits. Let me give you a hundred good reasons why you should do something. When what we really should be looking for is helping somebody really realize there's no good reason they shouldn't. Wow. And I think this is particularly prevalent in a real estate market right now. Like when, when everything's downhill, like, let me just give you five good reasons to choose me. And like, you're as good as anybody, but in a challenging market, you got to get people to choose to do it before they choose to choose you. And here's the challenge that all salespeople have is that you're not selling in a vacuum. You see, the truth is the world is conspiring to change all around us at any given time. One minute, the market's amazing, and no matter what you say works, and the next minute, due usually to external factors, it isn't anymore. So nobody would ever wake up and say, the world has changed, but I should operate and say the exact same things that I was. That's what he's hitting at. 
This idea that we wake up and the words that we use to move people into action faster with us than without us are somehow static, and the same words work no matter what is happening is absolutely tone deaf to the art of the conversation. The truth is, anyone who's having a sales conversation is an artist. The conversation is your canvas. Your words are the paints. And depending on what you're painting, you need to know exactly what to say and what your strategy is. I went to a, a, a real estate business where we were selling overseas investments, but we de-emotionalized the transaction by turning a real estate purchase into a financial transaction, created a, a model that was a pension alternative, really, through freehold investing. And it created a really clean way to be able to communicate about it. But we weren't selling homes in Cyprus. We were selling turn 20 grand into 200 grand over a 10-year period of time through capital appreciation and reduction of mortgage through rental income that's been you know, very much what people would see as a route to wealth in traditional real estate investing. But, you know, go to entrepreneurs, how do you fancy giving us five grand every six months for two years and turn 20 grand into 200 over a 10-year period? It's a pretty easy decision for many folks to make. Well, when you put it that way. Right. We have four cornerstones of conversational excellence within our body of work and exactly what to say. And, and this is where we take people on a deeper dive. Like what I do on a keynote, what people see in the book is, is scratching the surface. The way that you write a book that sells millions of copies is you leave a ton out. It's about brevity. It's about making sure people can get from the beginning to the end. It's not everything you know on a subject. So when I get the chance to be able to share more about the principles of exactly what to say, our starting point is often the four cornerstones. The first is something that I introduce into many of my keynote speeches, where I joke with the fact that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it. If I think about you know, the joy I had at Megacamp, you share that line, it's a laugh line. It's not meant to be a joke. It's actually the truth. It's, it comes off as a joke, though, when you say it, because everyone's like, yeah, of course. Right. But it's not supposed to be funny. And the missing word in all of that is, in fact, moment. The worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment. We actually know the moments we're highly likely to find ourselves in. People think they need to learn the words. You don't need to learn the words. You need to master the moments. And if you can raise your emotional intelligence for what's required of that moment, and you have a parlor of words behind you or a pantry of words behind you, meaning you can craft the right dish for the moment that's being asked of you, there you've got mastery. But it isn't about remembering the words. It's about having access to the right words to master the moments. And now all of a sudden you're operating at a different level. And I think, you know, let's take a you know, million dollar real estate agent is, is, what are the moments? Well, you know the moments are going to come up in a listing presentation, which is why you versus somebody like you. You know the moments are going to come up when you're dealing with a first-time buyer that they're nervous about is now the right time. You know a moment's going to exist in a transaction where an inspection comes up and, and there is something that is surprising to both parties that is a problem with the home that's going to result in this getting clunky. Now, what happens in those scenarios quite often is there's like, it's $8,000 worth of repairs. And, you know, what happens is one agent throws it to the other agent. They say, well, my seller's not paying for it. And the other agent says, well, my buyer doesn't want to pay for it either. And what they believe is the successful outcome to the negotiation is, shall we go 50-50 on it and kick it back in at the closing table? <laughs> the two agents take the hit on it.
said every agent ever. Yes. I hope you're going to tell us how to get around that. Well, the point of it is, is that you have to understand that that moment's going to come up. And how do you deal with a moment that you know is going to come up is you prepare people for the moment. So what you're saying to your seller is what is your experience of a home inspection and what might happen and what might information might you find as a result of this? Okay. And they're going to say not much. You're going to say, well, would it help if I walk you through what may or may not happen as a result of this inspection? And what I'd then do is I'd map out a story that say is it's highly possible, perhaps unlikely, though, that they're going to find that the house is perfect, everything is in complete working order, and that there is no issues that require any form of resolve. Like it's possible, but highly unlikely. Similarly, what they might come up with is they might stumble across a major concern that could be a significant red flag for you. There could be a foundational issue. There could be some form of immediate need to upgrade a roof or a furnace, et cetera, or something that's going to result in significant capital outlay in a short period of time for the house to be worth the sum of money that you currently believe that you're paying for it. But more than likely, what's going to happen is there are going to be a maybe a significant number of small items that add up to you know a few hundreds or a few thousands per of remedial repairs because at the end of the day this is not a brand new home it was built in 1964 so just as we go into this is i'm thinking more than likely that you like the house the way that it currently is right now and providing there's no major concerns the if any of these little things come up then we might roll the dice to see if that there is something that we can get as an incentive back in from the seller. But if we can't, we're still pretty happy to buy the house at the price that we are currently under contract at. They're like, yeah. yeah you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you. And it, 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 it isn't a complicated concept. I think the key to this is when you're having it. Like, Because right. the, the, like, I'm sitting here and I'm saying, okay, why is this magic? This is magic because all of this is happening long before the scenario ever presents itself. So that right. you're having the conversation prior to it becoming an emotional conversation. Correct. Let's play this on the other side. Okay. And you're playing it and you're speaking to your seller and you know that there's going to be some things that come up. You know that there's some skeletons in the closet to a point. You know, like, they're going to look at some things and, like, that wiring's a little off and that was a bit funky. And, like, good for you on the DIY project on the third bathroom, buddy, but, like, that ain't to code, right? You know it and it looks okay, but you know that something's going to come up. Now what you do is that you own the elephant in the room. Hey, what is your experience of what happens when a home inspector comes out when you're under contract? Seller says, well, like, you know, not so much. You say, well, would it help if I walk through what's likely to happen from here? Yeah, like that would help. Well, it's going to be one of three things. Either a home inspector is going to come out and they are highly unlikely to do so, but they're going to tell you that this 64-year-old home of yours is perfect. It's just like you're new. There's nothing wrong with it. And even though their job is to find fault, they're going to find no fault. Highly unlikely, but possible. Alternatively, they might stumble over some major concerns, some structural issues, et cetera, that could compromise the contract that we have in place. Is there anything that you're aware of in the home right now that you haven't disclosed to me at this point in time that could come up as a red flag or a problem that could mean that we are all finding ourselves on the back foot. Just come straight for it. Yeah. And hopefully they say, well, no, nothing major. But I do need to let you know that we did this ourselves and that we didn't get permits for this. And okay. So it sounds to me that what's likely to happen is we're going to be in this middle option. Is The inspector is going to come back with a list. The list is going to have 10 things on it, 15 things on it, 
20 things on it that that could require some form of intention and would have some form of capital expenditure in order to be able to put those things right. And what's highly likely to happen is the seller's going to want either a number of those things put right before we close, or they're going to want some form of financial incentive back in the other direction that results in us being able to move forward without any loss of friction. If we find ourselves in that middle camp, which direction do you think you want to go in? Are you going to be open to doing repairs and upgrades before we close? Or would you rather look towards just some form of financial incentive back in the other direction at the closing table for ease and speed of transaction? Yeah, so you've given them now two routes, both of which accomplish our goal, and now no one has to feel angry about it when it happens. Correct. Like if an elephant's going to appear in the room, put the elephant in the room yourself, ride the elephant, dress the elephant, and now the elephant is no longer a problem. And that's sage advice. Because some people will tell you to avoid the conversations that you know are going to be the most difficult and the most emotional in the hopes that the person simply doesn't ask, that maybe it just doesn't come up. The, the fact of the matter is, is you're far better running towards a difficult conversation than running away from it. When in doubt, always disclose. And here's what great authors do. And, and Gary Keller and Jay Papazan who wrote the book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, they're great authors. And when you read that book, what you see is the first thing they tell you are all the myth understandings about the topic. And the reason they do that is because they know that critical thinkers often come from a critical place. They come in with a whole litany of reasons why this won't work for them, which is exactly what buyers and sellers of anything do. And why they go there first is to take all of the energy away from people's objections before they ever ask it. What Phil is saying makes all the sense in the world, which is I give people linear roads to get to the same place as long as that place is somewhere I want them to go. All right, so that, that, that first principle makes all the sense in the world to me. Master the moment. So I guess in order to do that, I have to think about whatever business I'm in. I mean, if you're listening to this and you own the car wash or you're the insurance salesman or you own a jewelry store or you're a real estate agent, it couldn't hurt, Phil, you, to make a list of all the moments that keep coming up in my business. And just keep choosing a new moment to focus on that you decide that matters. Like, I find it fascinating that one of the most successful businesses on the planet, one of the most globally exported brands is the brand of McDonald's, right? And that business ran successfully at significant profits for 30 plus years without realizing a highly profitable moment. And a highly profitable moment was the option of supersize. Which I, I, by the way, just guilty pleasure, I'm in on the supersize, right. by the way. But think about it, right? They had to get clear on where the moment was. Because if they get that moment wrong, what happens is, like, at the front end of a transaction, et cetera, is like, hey, would you like 17 extra French fries and a thimble more of Coca-Cola, and I'm going to charge an extra 50 cents for it? You're probably not, I could do without. But what do they do? They wait for the perfect moment. Where's the perfect moment? It's after you've ordered. And before you've paid. Right. They just say, do you want that supersize? And everyone says yes to that. I want a Diet Coke served in a garbage can. I That's need it. that, Phil. Right. But what would happen if they didn't ask? What would happen if they came back to you two weeks later and said, hey, hey do you want the extra Coke and French fries now? <laughs> it's fair. Right. You're not into it at that given point. Is they know the right time to be able to actually make that invitation. And of course, it's a no brainer. If they ask you to subscribe to a, you know, 
an annual uplifted VIP fee that gave you supersize every time you came in and asked you for, for, for $50 a year for it, you'd probably like, are you kidding? But you'll spend $50 a year on supersize when the moment is right. You know, I'm, I'm thinking now in all the places that that happens to me. That's the extra 17 bucks to get A-list preferred that comes up right before I board a flight on Southwest. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so I get principle number one. I got to master my moments, which means I got to know my moments. And then I got to figure out what to say ahead of time. What's number two? Is that curiosity is the fuel to great conversation. What does that mean? Is If you think about a motor engine, if you put the wrong fuel in it, then that motor engine inevitably breaks, blows up, possibly broken to the point of disrepair. And the only way you're going to improve this is by replacing it. Same is true if you put the wrong fuel into a conversation. The fuel that people often put into a conversation, particularly those that are experts or entrepreneurs who think highly of themselves, is the fuel they put into conversation to instill confidence in others is certainty. They show up with an I know. They show up with a let me tell you. Let's use the real estate metaphor again. It's like, here's why now is the best time to be able to sell. Is Let me tell you I know what your home is worth. These messiah crystal ball levels of governance that folks have that clearly they don't have in the real world. But at that point in time, what it does is it creates friction in the other person. Because when you show up with so much levels of certainty, you create uncertainty in the other person. When you Gosh. show up with so much I know, like you want to prove that other person wrong. Showing up with curiosity by alternative earns you context. In every conversation, you want to deliver content. But if you insert content before you've earned context, all you did is you made a noisy situation noisier. Let's make this real simple. Is You've got kids in your life, right? I do. How many times have you given exceptional advice to your children. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm the greatest at it, Phil, it turns out. And I'm talking multiple times every day. Right. You give the best advice quite often for entirely the wrong problem. If he would just listen, by the way, to all my advice, he'd be living a better life. I just want you to know that full on. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. But often we jump straight to the conclusion that we know what somebody should be doing, but we don't know enough about their real life circumstances or context for a device to be able to meet the moment because we weren't curious enough to understand full context. We jumped straight to the assumption that we believe we know enough of the puzzle to be able to have certainty over the advice. A simple rule of thumb is when you think you know the answer, ask three more questions. Wow. To check that you're sure. Like cross-examine yourself before you reach full judge, jury, and execution, right? It's, it's just three more questions. And it's a real great practice is real estate scenario again, is, is you believe that you're the right agent for the job or, and you're about to explain to them what you charge and how you're going to do things, et cetera, just before you get to your pitch, three more questions. Why do you think, I'm curious, because it feels like asking questions should be easier than giving statements or giving facts or proving your intelligence. Why is it so much more comfortable for people to jump into the ladder? Asking questions feels risky. Huh. Asking questions is... If you've ever coached young athletes, by young I mean like seven-year-olds, nine-year-olds, four, like there's a point in time where like this would be so much easier if I just jumped onto the field of play myself and went and got this thing done, right? Yes. 
but you quickly then have that realization that to achieve that outcome, I cannot do this myself. I need to get them to do this themselves. And that if they can do it themselves, then that's the growth that we're looking for because there's conviction and certainty in their actions. This same thing is true from a conversational point of view. Us just over-communicating is us trying to do it ourselves. It's us in the tell mode. It's harder. It's a greater skill to be able to get the other person to see what you're seeing for them, but for themselves. It's slower. So, so you're you're really asking your way to success. You're interviewing your way to success. You're you're not. That that makes all the sense in the world to me. So if I look up at my current presentations, and the majority of it is I present for forty minutes and then ask them what they think, you would tell me I'm completely backwards. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know a lot of people listening here are in the real estate world, so we can stay in that metaphor. Now, I'll show a classic example of what happens in listing presentations is we forget to question on one of the most important things that's going to win us context in recommending ourselves as the right person for the job. We fail to take a past, present, future arc in our questioning. We talk about where you're at right now, where you want to go next, and let me tell you about what I think your house is worth and how brilliant we are at being able to get it sold in the shortest period of time for the most money, and let me show you my fancy videos and all my brochures. right? And look, I've got loads of other people who have done it, and here's all the data that backs up my guesstimate as to what I think your house is worth. Somebody gave you my whole presentation prior to this call. I know it. Okay, now destroy my worldview. Why is that the wrong way to go? We miss something that can help us earn the respect and the trust and the emotional intelligence of the person that's trying to navigate one of the most complex decisions in their life. We miss the journey that got them to today. So if I start the whole conversation to say, well, how long have you guys been in this place? And they're like, we, yeah, we've been in 12 years. Oh, cool. Well, what made you decide to choose to live here 12 years ago? Well, we took a move with a job and and we wanted to get a bigger place for the kids, moved out to the suburbs and needed to give ourselves some real room to grow. We were looking for a family home and, and yeah. And how's it worked out for you over that last 12-year period of time? Yeah, it's been pretty good. We've got plenty of great memories here. We've had many great holidays here and, you know, the you know, kids loved having their own room, but now they're all off to college and they're all out doing their own thing. And we're rattling around this old place right now. Got it. Got it. So the house was good for a time, but now that times have changed. Yeah, times have definitely changed. Now they've moved out of the house. So where are you going next? Yeah, you're building, you're getting complete perspective and context. And they, I'm assuming if I'm sitting, because I'm listening to this and I'm sitting, okay, if I'm sitting across the table, I actually am starting to think that you care. Right. And then I get the, where are you going next? And you tell me that you, you've always dreamed of wanting to be able to be near the beach and you've been vacationing in Florida for the last six or seven years and that you've found this one area down in St. Petersburg that you keep looking to go back to and you're looking at Zillow porn every night and trying to trying to find something that, that that could be a fit and a right. And it looks like you can spend about half the money you might have and plug some into your into your retirement plan and you and you think you want to go and pay less in income tax and get yourself down to Florida. Okay. Is this useful? So what do I now say? I say, who's the agent you're working with in Florida? And they say, well, nobody in particular yet. I say, would it help if you had a trusted resource on the ground down there that could keep their ear to the ground and find out what's coming? And also when you do see something late at night on Zillow that you want to have some more information around that you could kick them a text message and they could tell you what's real and 
help give you some understandings about what are the streets and what are the other things to consider when you're thinking about maybe buying from a distance. They're like, you could do that for me? Well, yeah, yeah, I could easily do that for you. So we haven't even got into a listing presentation. And they're like, dang, you are useful. Yeah, and human. You understand me, you're useful because nobody wants to buy a house. They want to buy a house because. Nobody wants to sell a house. They want to sell a house because. If you prove you understand the becauses, now all of a sudden how you make that happen is of interest to people, but only they're interested in can you do it, not how you're going to do it. That idea of you don't want to buy a house, you want to buy a house because, I think you could put in almost any service or any product. And all of a sudden, I never thought of the word because to be the most powerful word in a sentence. Right. You know, because you don't want to mow a lawn anymore, because that you'd rather pay less for taxes, because you'd like to be closer to where your kids are hanging, because you'd like to be able to walk on a beach in the morning. I, I, like If you can build the list of becauses, now we know what we're going to work for. Love that. Love that. See, later it arms you with other stuff as well that, that can affect and accelerate the speed of deal making. So now you're won the listing and you're 180 days past this point. And you were hopeful it was going to go for a big number. And the market has informed us that it's quite clearly not going to go for that big number because you've had approximately 57 showings and approximately zero offers. Right? So you're like, hang on. Something's not working out right here right now. And then all of a sudden, you get an offer that is $50,000 below where we were thinking would be the bottom end of what we were hoping for. But it's a $1.6 million home, and you know we're at 1.55, and we were hoping to get 1.75, 1.8, but we got 1.55 on the table, and they said they'd take anything over 1.6. This is real, right? But we know that they're desperate to get to Florida. The phone call isn't, I've got an offer, and I think this is the best we're going to get in this market, and ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Hey, if you could start saving $26,000 a year in taxes and live more of your days without the maintenance hassle of being in a giant home, and as early as November, December, be waking up with sand between your toes in Florida, would it be worth taking a 50 grand hit to achieve those outcomes? It's a much different question than this is what the market's giving us. What do you want to do? Right. I get it, man. The the information that you're getting in a human way, because all of this so far, I mean, the moments, the curiosity, this sounds like more human more often. And you're you're getting enough information to actually. And on the front foot, like I'm getting all the evidence that I might need up front. Yeah, that's the key. That's the key. Mm Mm-hmm. And because it's easy and effortless to get up front, if I'm trying to get it on the back foot and the other person has friction and they're in defense mode, now I'm in an argument. The why behind why someone is doing something is always going to be the most important thing to get. And that's what Phil's talking about here, which is there's going to be tons of inconvenience when you buy something, when you sell something. Heck, most of y'all are leaders. Think about it in the workplace when you try to get somebody to do a whole bunch of things that they might not instinctively want to wake up and do. And Nietzsche, and far be it from me to quote Nietzsche, but I'm going to do it anyway. Nietzsche said it best. He said, He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And that's what Phil is saying. They want to get to Florida in this instance. And so now, unfortunately, there's going to be some things that you don't love that it's going to take to get there. It's the exact same thing. If the why is big enough, people will put up with almost any how.
I was going to ask you, what are some of the conversation frameworks during arguing? And what you're teaching me is, here's what you do to stay out of an argument. Yeah. Arguments end with losers. Which means even if you're the winner, you just built a loser. So good. All right. What's number three? I got, I got, I got moments. I got curiosity as the fuel. People do things for their reasons and not yours. What does that mean? It means that you should never, ever, 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 ever tell somebody to do something unless you can say these words first. And the words you should look to be able to say first are the words because of the fact that you said. Because of the fact that you said blank, blank, and blank, for those reasons, what I'd recommend is blank, blank, and blank. In the medical industry, they say prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. Same is true as a sales professional. Yet many sales professionals are running out prescribing for things they haven't yet diagnosed. They're pushing their own agenda, their own beliefs, their own opinions, their own thought process. This often happens in a recruitment scenario when people are looking to try and recruit somebody towards their mission, recruit somebody into their business, recruit somebody in as an investor, recruit somebody into their team. Is they show up and throw up. I don't know if I've quite heard it put so eloquently, Phil, but yes, I guess that's what they do. Yeah. Instead, we want to be able to say like, hey, because of the fact that you said that what you're looking to be able to do is to be part of an organization that has room for you to grow, that provides you the support and infrastructure and training to be able to plug in some skills that perhaps aren't your current strengths and gives you a platform for you to be able to be surrounded by other like-minded people that perhaps provides you more enthusiasm in your life, then for those reasons, I'd recommend that you join us at our next team meeting and see if you're seeing the kind of culture that you think you could be a part of. I guess they kind of grow on themselves, meaning if you didn't use curiosity, there's no way you can ever start the conversation because of what you said. And so these feel like they're layering. That's exactly it. You know, the framework, because of the fact that you said blank, blank, and blank, for those reasons, what I'd recommend is blank, blank, and blank, is, a, is, is an insanely simple framework in theory. It's challenging in practice because you have to collect the blanks. What do you use to collect the blanks? You use strategic curiosity. No, I say strategic curiosity. If you're looking to make recommendations, there are known pieces of evidence you're looking to collect that would strengthen your argument. Let's look at even things like the home buying process. What needs to be true if it's going to be true that buying a home today is a good idea? Well, what needs to be true is that you are committed to the idea of home ownership. What else needs to be true? that you see yourself living in that home for a sustained period of time. What else needs to be true? You're currently in a position holding the funds that are required to be able to either pay in full or pay the size of down payment that you're looking to be able to pay. What else needs to be true? The monthly payment that is required of you, regardless of interest rate at this period of time, is within your means of being able to pay. What else needs to be true? Ah, well, if, if you are going to be making more money in the future than you are today, then that means making a financial decision today is easier. So what needs to be true is that you see yourself being employed in your role for the sustainable future or a better role. Now we can start to write questions that collect us this body of evidence. Yeah, strategic curiosity. Yeah. How important is it to you that you actually own a home at some point in your life? Well, it's like pretty darn important. But yeah, like on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being it has to happen and one being it's a cute idea, how important? Well, it's like a nine or it's a 10. Got it. And how long do you see yourself staying in this neighborhood? I would be here for the foreseeable, definitely until, you know, the kids are done with high school. How old are the kids now? Okay, so you're going to be here at least 12 years. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Got it. 
And how long have you been looking at homes? Oh, we've been looking for a while. So if you look at the length of time that you've been looking, how many have you seen that could have been a potential possible home that you would like to move in on? Oh, we've seen a few that we wish we made offers on. Okay, so there's definitely inventory in the market. What am I doing? Is I'm just knocking off all of the potential objections that could be coming. Now I'm going to stick in this. I'm going to say, so um, are you in a position to be able to make a sensible down payment on a home of that kind of price point at this period of time? They're like, yeah, we've been saving for a while. We, you know, we got we got 140,000 saved and we're looking to buy a five, 550 grand house. All right, so we're in good shape. God, I just want to jump in and say, Phil, based on what you've told me, here's what I'd recommend. Because you're building this, this infallible case for home ownership. Three more questions that we're going to keep going with, though, right? I, I'm going to then ask, so um, I know that interest rates are a little higher than perhaps we would all hope they are at this moment in time. But based on a you know $400,000 mortgage and the kind of payments that that's spitting out, is that a number that you can find on a monthly basis for the forthcoming months? And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah we can afford to pay it. We might have to button up in a few different areas. It's a bit more than what we're paying on rent, but yeah, we can find that money. Got it. So you can afford to do this right now. Oh, one more question is, um, I know you're both employed right now. Do you see yourselves in those kind of careers for the foreseeable future? Yeah, yeah, we think so. And do you think the earnings are going to go up, down, or stay about the same? Oh, I'd like to think that we're going to make more money as years go on. I'm hoping for a promotion. In fact, maybe this time next year. Got it. So your payments are going to become more affordable to you in time. Yeah, definitely they will be. Hey, and the good news is, is that because of the fact that you're employed and that you see yourself doing so for the future, did you know that if and when rates do drop, that you're going to be in a position to refinance? And if you were to keep your payment the same, then actually what you'll do is you'll own your home even quicker. Does that sound cool? See, the thing I find fascinating is that lots of people right now are waiting for the market to crash, waiting for interest rates to drop and um, thinking it's going to save them money in the long run. Yeah, what the smart people are realizing is that if they do make a move in a market like right now, sure, it might cost them a few tens or hundreds of dollars a month in the short term, but it's going to save them tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in the long term. Because if interest rates were to drop, then what it will mean is then hundreds of thousands of more buyers are coming into the marketplace, making the market more competitive, probably putting prices higher. So the fact that home ownership is important to you, and because of the fact that you said you'd like to own your home in its entirety, then it sounds to me like now might be the best time to dive into the market, knowing that what you can do is use your strong buying position to give yourself a fair advantage in a marketplace that doesn't have a great deal of inventory. If you do all of that in a buyer console before you show somebody a house. Oh, forget about it. I feel I wasn't planning on buying a house and I'm literally calling an agent at the end of this call and I've just been convinced. I'm Dude, I am so glad that I'm not competing with you in my local marketplace. <laughs> but I, but this, is the, this is why, and if you haven't read exactly what to say or exactly what to say for real estate agents, you need to. Because as I was reading it, I wasn't reading it and I'm not hearing it. I was feeling it. And I promise you, if you are listening to this podcast, you felt what he was saying in your tummy and you started thinking, well, I, sh I should buy a house, another home. <laughs> It's crazy to me, Phil. So, well, I got to ask you because you, Gary Keller, and you shared the stage and you've spoken together. And he said to me after he pulled me aside and he was talking about you. And he said, Jason, that man is an artist. And the conversation is his canvas and the words are his paints. And he knows exactly what he's painting. And I, by the way, I, he, that's a compliment 
please take it. <laughs> but I want to ask you, as I'm listening to you, are, are you an artist or are you a scientist? Yes, to both those questions. What I think in, and, and, and I've, I've struggled with this question for some time, so I've given it a lot of thoughtful thought, is I think in terms of what I've learned to call story math. So do the words add up? And I hope that makes sense, is are the words adding up? What it then means is everything you're saying, every word that's leaving from your mouth is either hurting or helping. Some things you say multiply the outcome you're looking for. Some things divide. Some things add, some things subtract, but nothing is neutral. The second you start to think about that, you just grow your intentionality around everything. Like so many people look at like online marketing funnels and they look at all the different components or where there's drop off on the waterfall or where there's you know, lacking conversion in, in the micro moments in the data. Why don't we do the same in the story? I want you to think about every conversation you're having as an emotional bank account. And the truth is you're only making withdrawals or deposits in this bank account as you go. And by the way, th there's so much of this idea of everything being a bank that'll trail you throughout your life. It's the exact same thing running a sales funnel. Every single thing you're doing for that sales funnel is either a deposit of value or it's a withdrawal from it. And what Phil is saying about conversations is the exact same way. He calls it the math of the discussion, but here's the, a simple way to think about it. Are you saying things that bring people emotionally closer to you or are you saying things that push them away? Are you saying things that the people closest to you allow them to feel loved and needed and wanted, or are you making them feel like they're not part of the group? Are you pushing them away from you emotionally? You see, there, there's this idea that when people go to make a decision, they'll do it with whoever's in closest emotional or physical proximity to them. It's called the law of emotional proximity. Physical, we all get. If you're sitting next to someone, it's easy to get them to go along with you. But if you're running a sales business at scale and you're trying to move emotionally closer to a ton of people in a database or one-on-one, -on -one, even in a conversation, here's the question. Do you want to have more deposits that make people feel better and closer to you? Or do you want to have more withdrawals where you're taking things away? You're all going to say deposits. And all Phil is saying is the only way to have more deposits is to be wildly purposeful about the words that you're using that make them. I have went through some element of school and a million hours of sales training. And very rarely has the equation of the conversation ever been talked about with me. Right. Because it's hard. This is really freaking hard. Like you can get from zero to 90 with all the other stuff. And actually big businesses are built on like mass mediocrity. Like can I create, you know, a thousand people that are solid six and a half out of 10? Chances are that's going to ride you, you know, a fair amount of di distance. But if you want to get to mastery or you want to be able to get to an understanding of, of being able to predict things at the highest of levels, you've got to push through 91, 92, 93, 94, 95. Like, and the best of the best of the best, they figured it out with words. Like, what is it that makes the best lawyer the best lawyer? It's not the person yeah. who knows them all the best. Those are the words. Right? They know the words. They know how to build argument. They, how to, they know how to make a case. And quite often in a sales environment, we're trying to make a case. Does, does all this show up? I, I'm, I'm getting it. It's hitting me hard uh, as far as the sales business goes. Does it show up in your personal life, Phil, at all? Because like, I, I have two visions in my head. One, you, you got, you know, all the words to say and you have the single greatest marriage in the history of the world. Or number two, your beloved looks at you and says, stop coaching me and don't do that math thing with your words. 
Yeah. Uh, and I think there's examples of both, right? Um, and relationships are hard. Like, I'm not pretending to have that part all figured out. And um, I think where it does show up in our life with the most value is actually when it comes to how we build our life together. You know, the complex decisions that come up about where you want to live and uh, where you want to travel to and how you want to raise your family. And, you know, those decisions that you're looking to be able to make collectively to try and get on the same page about the growth of a life together. And, and I don't think that gets talked about enough is, is we all say that we want to be more, have more, etc. We want to grow our wealth. We want to grow the size of the house we live in. We want to have better vacations, better excursions, better wealth planning for the future, etc. But if you can't work out the details of what that really looks like, all you do is you build a life of more. And then you've got to deal with all of the moreness, which is often not a good thing. It's often very untidy. If you want to grow and you want to grow together, where this skill set has become probably more helpful is to slow the process down when it comes to trying to reinvent. And the result of which of actually where it's delivered tremendous value in our life is we've up-leveled our life five, six, seven times in a decade. That's beautiful. And I think, you know, in that environment, it's strong. In a human heated argumentative environment, then what can sometimes happen is passion can take over. You forget that curiosity is the fuel. It's a great conversation. You forget that people do things for their reasons and not yours. And just because you know the rules doesn't mean you always play the rules. And that animal spirit in you comes out. And before you know it, you get reminded that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment you're saying it when you just said something where you realize that was a stupid thing to say. It's so good and so raw and so accurate. The last time you and I were visiting, you flew across the pond, you came to hang out, and we ended up in a conversation about you're going to fly back to, to London. And the first things you say when you get home are important. And yeah. I, can you take our, our listeners on that journey for you? Because you, you get on airplanes and you're in demand all over the world. But at the end of every trip, you go back to the same house. Right. And, and, and so if I believe that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment you're saying it, what I encourage people to think about, and by people I include myself, is to always be working on three critical conversations at any one time. One in your personal life, one in your role as a leader, and one that's going to put money in your pocket. Bring awareness and raise your gaze towards saying you know what those three conversations are all time, because now you know what you're working on. And I encourage people to get super specific on what those moments are. Like, not I'm trying to have better team meetings with my employees. It's I'm looking to master my 10-minute huddles that I have every Thursday mornings, and in particular, the opening of those 10-minute huddles. What I share with you and I share with a group of people around is that the personal critical conversation that I'm working on at this time is what comes out of my mouth in the first 15 seconds when I re-enter the home from a trip. Why did that matter? Because, be real, right? If I get that wrong, what are the chances of me having a good evening? <laughs> yeah, there's no chance. Right? Like 15 seconds could cost me my night, could cost me my weekend, could cost me my marriage, could cost me my life. It compounds up that way around. So if I can find this micro moment, which has compounding over indexing impact, and I can at least get that right, first 15 seconds, right? Hey, hey, I might actually have a nice evening, might have a nice weekend, might have a nice marriage, might have a nice life. Spot on. It's spot on. And, the, and, and here's the thing. Everybody listening to this is going to walk in the front door. 
and with, with if you have any luck at all, you're walking in and someone that you actually want to be with. And I wish that you're, that's awesome. But have you given any thought to that first 15 seconds? I, cause I never had, but when you said it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And, and the, the point in all this is you don't need any more skills. You just need to add some intentionality and some thoughtful thought ahead of a moment and you're better in the moment. It's not about how skilled you are in the moment. It's about recognizing that moment matters enough to get ready for it. So it's going to be different for everybody, and I get that. But my last question to you on this topic, and then I'm going to push you into the lightning round. I promise you'll love it. Now, everyone listening, the comments are blowing up. So what do I say in the first 15 seconds to have a good night? Is it that simple? Um, No, of course it's not. And (laughs) It never is. No, and, and it shouldn't be either, right? Like this is the complexity of the tapestry of life. Like we're like we're looking for easy buttons, but there aren't no easy buttons. And I think accepting that is the is the beauty of the mess that we all live in. The frameworks that I've put around this in my own mind that have been helpful is I'm looking to do one of three things. A genuine compliment, sincere recognition, or the request of an opinion. Ooh, I had the first two. What's the last one? What's the request of an opinion? Is quite often there are things that have been going on in my world that I need to bring, you know, the people that I'm stepping into up to speed on. And we might have been texting about it through the day, but, it, you know, I can come through the door and I can say, hey, honey, uh, uh, you, know, you know, I'm working on blank, blank and blank. What are your thoughts about, you know, what we should do with that? And it's either you're joining their story or you're inviting them in to join yours. It's pure gold. It's fantastic. Phil, I, I can't thank you enough, man. I mean, you, you're a mentor of mine and anybody listening to this that hasn't bought and read this book, whether you want to be better at sales or simply better at life, I think you're insane if you don't go do it right now. Push pause and do it right now. <laughs> Meanwhile, Phil, everyone that enters this Pantheon ends up in the lightning round. So here's what I like. They're quick. I just First thing that comes to your head, what's your favorite food? Oh, geez, I get so much food. What's my favorite food? It's almost uh, as if I didn't explain what the lightning round was. It's I the know, first thing that comes to your mind as quick as you can. Well, the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment <laughs> you're saying it. You gave me no time. Like a lightning round's not going to be good with me. I'm going to say just a well-cooked um, fillet steak with asparagus. Just keep it simple. I'm, I'm good with that. And if there's some truffle fries alongside it, I won't say no. It's fantastic. Favorite color? Orange. Is there a favorite sound that you have right now? Um, the sound of a well-played piano. I like that. Interesting. That's very interesting to me. Gary also chose a musical instrument, so I, I love that. Um, not your favorite book, not one of your books, but is there a book that was transformative for you that you think other people might want to read? The book I recommend the most, and I'm actually going to give two answers to this question, is a book by Michael Bungai Stanya, and it's called, or MBS, and it's called The Coaching Habit. And it was inspiring to me for a couple of reasons. It was seven powerful questions to make you more coach-like in all areas of your life, which I think being more coach-like is perhaps better than being a coach. And also, it was it came out a couple of years before exactly what to say, so it was very inspiring as a model to be able to provide some confidence to the fact that my model of a book would work. And then more recently, a book that has insanely revolutionized my life, my personal life in a big way, is a book called Buy Back Your Time by a friend of mine called Dan Martell. And it is the most useful book 
on quote unquote time management that I have ever experienced because it's practical to a level of crazy degrees. And for us as entrepreneurs and looking to be able to leverage our time and outkick our coverage from a wages earnings point of view, it helps systemize, wrap your head around how to be able to spend more of your time doing the stuff that is you in your high path areas, highest and best use. It's fantastic. Thank you for that. Favorite movie? Oh, Jerry Maguire. So, you know, I was the Jerry Maguire of real estate and it wasn't just my mom who said it, Phil, it was the New York Times. They okay. said it. This is why we get on that. This is it. Kindred spirits. Um, I, I know that you're on a ton of podcasts and you do a ton of podcasts. Is there is there one or two that you enjoy for entertainment value that you, you find you like those words in your head? Honestly, I spend so much time this side of a microphone on podcasts and interviews that I have to be real to say I haven't listened to many in the last 12 months that um, have been particularly prevalent. Okay, that, that's the beauty of the lightning round. You get complete honesty. And the last question, we've added it only for you, which is interesting. What's the one travel hack that you have added into your life as you zigzag the entire world, bringing your message to people? Uh, the one travel hack is, um, I mean, so many. Okay, well, give them, that, give them all then. Just name a couple. The big one for me is, is hire a driver, is having a driver relationship in my home city that is my driver has changed my travel life no end because now I feel like I get home when I get in the car as opposed to getting off a plane trying to call an uber doesn't matter if it's an uber black etc etc you're dealing with that hassle there was an extra veneer of stress that didn't need to exist instead now I get a text message from Hanny my driver is like hey track your plane seen you running early I'll see you I'll see you you know b31 etc like that has changed my world this last 12 months. And you're not saying get a driver in the city you're going to. You're saying instead of parking your car in covered parking at the airport, get your own driver in your hometown. Yes. I love it. Friends, that is Phil Jones, a uh, friend to all salespeople and a mentor of mine. Phil, I can't tell you how grateful I am. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show and thanks for the fun conversation. And there it is. That wraps another episode. Friends, I don't know what you're taking out of this. I really don't. I'll tell you what I want you to be taking out of it, which is these are the people that are having tremendously big lives. And the reason it's happening is because they're setting up the models and systems to do just that. Gary Keller told me that leadership is teaching people how to think so that they do the things they need to do when they need to do them so that ultimately they get the things they want when they want to have them. And that's what I want for you. You're all leaders, but it begins with leading ourselves. If you're enjoying this podcast, I want you to click the subscribe button anywhere that you get your podcasts. We want to be the voice in your head every single week. And every week we're dropping new content. We also send out a newsletter at the conclusion of every show to make sure that you get the highest points and the models and systems that were discussed. So if you want to sign up, I need your name and your email address. Head over to the millionaireagentpodcast.com. Millionaireagentpodcast.com. Enter your name and your email address, and every week that newsletter will be in your box. Friends, you just went on a journey. I hope that what happens between now and the next time we meet is absolutely wonderful for you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. 
This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The views, thoughts, and opinions of the guest represent those of the guest and not KWRI and its affiliates, and should not be construed as financial, economic, legal, tax, or other advice. This podcast is provided without any warranty or guarantee of its accuracy, completeness, timeliness, or results from using the information. 